Hello, and welcome to Think Like a Game Designer. I'm your host, Justin Gary. In this podcast, I'll be having conversations with brilliant game designers from across the industry with a goal of finding universal principles that anyone can apply in their creative life. You can find episodes and more at thinklikeagamedesigner.com. In today's episode, I speak with Tim Hutchins. Tim is most known as the lead designer of Thousand Year Old Vampire. This is a solo RPG that is really as much an art piece as it is a game. It has an incredibly interesting mechanic that helps you feel this real sense of loss as your memory slowly decays over the long lifespan of a vampire. We talk about this project and the design process behind it. We also talk about Tim's beginnings as an artist and how his art inspired his work as a game designer, what can be said through the artistic medium of design and agency relative to other art mediums. We talk about his process of teaching and how the philosophy behind game designs and the theory behind game design and gaming in general can inform your designs. We bounce around a lot of really fascinating aspects of what makes games games, what he tries to say with his games, how we think about design as an art form, how we think about the way that people create and the types of things that is how he makes such innovative, interesting, different games and how you might be able to do the same. This was a really fun podcast for me to record. Um, I only knew about Tim's work. I hadn't really gotten to dig into his background in animation and art and getting to see his teaching. And so this was a really great way to sort of unpack it all. And he even reveals a little spoiler at the end about how his career is changing. I'll leave that as a teaser so you'll have to hear that. And I think we're going to be bringing him on even as a guest lecturer in a future session of the Think Like a Game Designer Masterclass. So until that next time, this is going to be a great introduction to Tim's work, to some very practical concrete tips, as well as a lot of really interesting theoretical discussion about the backbone of what makes art and design possible. So I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. So without any further ado, here is Tim Hutchins. Hello and welcome. I am here with Tim Hutchins. Tim, it is really exciting to get to talk to you. Thanks for taking the time. Uh, it's so nice of you to ask me to be here. Thank you. Yeah, so 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 there's um, the, there's a lot of interesting things I want to dig into. Um, uh, of course, you know the, the kind of design that you're you're probably most well known for. Audience will know you is, is Thousand Year Old Vampire, and that is a fascinating thing I want to unpack a lot. But as I was doing my research on you. Um, I really I didn't know this when I started uh, to invite you on the podcast, but that you actually have a a whole fine arts background that you've done animation for Netflix. You've had a variety of art shows. So I'd love to just start there. Let's how did you get into art? How did that kind of what was that process like? And then we'll get to this transition to game design over time. Cool. Um, so, yeah, I have a whole sad failed uh, burned in the wreckage art life. Um, that <laughs> really was the center of my whole being for a long time. I did the whole thing. I went to art school, um, decided like, you know, committed when I was 17 to a life of whatever it was. And then, um, uh, before, before we get into it, talk to me about what got you to there. Right. Cause a lot of people, there's a lot of resistance around, you know, being an artist or what is it that was your family artist? Was there something that some spark that showed up for you? Like what brought you into that? It's so long ago. I'm no longer certain. 
I think I had some vague idea that I wanted to go into animation. Um, but I was not a good, I couldn't draw well. Um, and I had no actual experience with anything animated. But what happened was in art school, I started getting interested in art art. Uh, I started saying, hey, performance art is really cool. There's all this stuff that was happening in the 60s and 70s and structuralist filmmaking and all this stuff. Uh, I got really into art theory, um, art, uh, high art. And then I went to graduate school, a fancy school. I got a sculpture degree and um, went to New York City and had a New York City art life. Um, you know, I'd go to places. I'd show my, I had, I guess, eight eight solo exhibitions in New York City at various places. And uh, like I'd go sometimes go and show overseas. And it was, it was a good time. Um, and the thing is, there's this, this transition that happened in New York City. I was in the right place at the right time. And my interest in games, I'd kind of tamped down while I was in college. I just didn't have time. I was super focused on um, art, everything. Art, everything is art, art all the time. And in New York, I started playing games again, tabletop board, uh, role-playing games and, and board games. And I played Settlers of Catan for the first time. I started playing uh, story games with what was called Nerd NYC. And uh, Nerd NYC was a... Um, uh, Epidiah Ravishol, uh, John Stavropoulos, a lot of designers that are important in the story game space uh, were there figuring stuff out. Um, the, the, and then you had within the kind of uh, range of New York City, you had the bakers, you had all these folks. And it was a magical time for me as an artist to see people doing really interesting work with the form of games and fund fundamentally questioning what games are how they work as communication channels, uh, how we can occupy them better. And I went through this terrible arc of realizing that games could do things that I wanted to do with art that I couldn't, that art couldn't manage. Um, okay. Art it. Yeah. 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 So I, I want, there's a lot of things to unpack here. And, cool. and, you know, one of my beliefs and one of the things I really like to emphasize is how these principles of creativity are universal. The principles of design are universal, but the medium will dictate the nature of the messages that you can transmit. And so this sounds very similar to what you're talking about yeah. here. So uh, when, you know, you were doing, you were having this, uh, you know, I don't want to leave the, the art, bohemian New York art lifestyle yet, because I just find it fascinating. I'd love to, you know, kind of paint me a little picture of, you know, what got you to those levels, because it sounds like a pretty high level of success. You're having a variety of art shows, you're having, you're traveling around the world, you're, you know, what is it that got you to that space? What was the messages you were trying to transmit? How did you feel like, how did you get yourself received? How did you, what's it like to run your first art show? I just, I like to linger here a little bit before we transition over, because I just think there's a lot of fascinating nuggets to unpack. So um, one of the things that happens, uh, or at least for me, it, with as I came to really dig in to um, uh, uh, contemporary art is the realization that this the levels of complexity about what you're seeing makes um, makes it incredibly difficult to absorb things in every level, right? There's so much going on with an artwork. And I became absorbed in this sort of, uh, uh, the idea of pushing the discourse, right? I'm going to make something that incrementally builds on all these other thoughts and pushes the bubble out just a tiny bit more. 
And there was so much art getting made and um, so much art just being shown. There's so many galleries all over the place. And that was part of um, uh, my deal is that with that my dissatisfaction with art is that I couldn't make these big strides. The field was so full of stuff. Uh, and, the, and if you step too far, you step out of art and into other things. Um, and you lose the ability to, to have that channel to contextualize what it is you're doing. Um, the other part, and this is what I've kind of realized looking back, is that there's relationships between art and uh, the gestalt idea of getting something all at once and taste making, right? Those three things interrelate, they interleave in a really um, intuitive uh, way, which is built on sophistication, right? Uh, I have certain art friends um, that I go around with and we would just instantly know something was like really good or we'd just be bored by so many things. Like this isn't doing anything, but why is this one good? Oh, it's doing something that's slightly new in this slightly new way. And it's saying something about everything that came before. Right. Um, and that's a cool way to make stuff. Yeah. Well, I mean, that seems like from what I'm hearing is like, I mean, this, it's a very, seems like a very clear direct parallel to, to get game design and those things in, in as well. Right. I mean, I, it, it, we, we take the designs and things that came before we want to push to something and bring something new to the table. If you're too new, then people can't relate to what's going on and you're, you're very unlikely to get traction. And if you're obviously, if you're too repetitive, people aren't going to be interested. And so there's this like really, like thin layer of like the open space for you to build new things. Yeah. And so that feels like uh, on both sides. So that's sort of both this, 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 this edge of innovation, right. And, and, and it's a common mistake for new designers, I think, to think that they want to be as innovative as possible. Um, and, and that that's, that can actually push you in the wrong direction. And then there's, um, you talked about the gestalt, right, of that, which I would the the ability to sort of understand and kind of grok what's going on, like get the get the full picture in uh, at once. And then I, the other thing that I thought I heard is taste making. Talk to me a little bit more about taste making and how that applies and what that means for for how the 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 industry and the the the, the design moves forward. That's a, it, it's the hardest thing for me to talk about. It's not something I really see other, it's not a term I picked up elsewhere. It's something I kind of feel like I figured out for myself, although I'm sure someone somewhere, uh, if you read, I'm sure like on Kitsch um, is, a, is an essay that I'm sure talks about this. And this may be where I've gotten some of these thoughts. Um, it's just the idea that we, uh, why do I think something is good or bad? Does my intuitive reaction to something being good or bad uh, align with people who are thinking sophisticated thoughts. I don't exactly know what the taste making part is, but I do know that like when I'm walking through spaces, I'm just yesing and knowing things and it's not a deep inquiry, right? It's like, a, Oh, this is fucking funny. This is, yeah. this is a punchline. That's not a joke. Uh, and I get it. And so again, it's like the, the joke moment, right? Uh, yeah. When it comes together. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so I'm just gonna I'm gonna riff with you here a little bit because I find this stuff fascinating. So you know, there's 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 elements of this where there's a there's there's sort of core resonance with the nature of humanity, right? There are things like why we like art, why we play games, right? There are certain 
sounds of music and 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 harmonics that are appealing to us there are certain colors and combinations that are appealing to us there are certain things within the game space that are we you know we love to learn to throw a ball around and pass it back and forth right because we instinctually want to develop these skills of a hand-eye coordination or resource management or whatever right so there's i think there's some fundamentals that are anchored in our nature as humans and then there are things that are anchored in our collective shared experience right that there's jokes are often funny um not going to deconstruct the entirety of humor here but they're all a big part of why they're funny is because there's a common realization of background knowledge that's shown that because i also have that knowledge i get that this is absurd or this doesn't make sense and and now we have a shared connection of we have this same shared knowledge that brings that together and then and then I'd say one more piece that I would throw into where I think would taste making would come from is then there's, because you use the word sophistication, there's a wanting to be at the kind of edge of this. The, I define my status, especially when you're really deep into something, right? You're a, you're a board game collector. You're an artist. You're a, right? You want to be um, liked and have similar visions with the other people who are at the top of the field and feel like you're amongst that group. And there are, includer excluder in-group out-group elements there where your tastes will shift and certain people can move the needle one way or another because of their influence and you will be influenced by them and then in turn influence others who are you know are in your orbit so uh i'll i i threw a lot out there but like you you kind of got my brain spinning of like those are the elements i see as kind of breaking down when i hear the term taste making how does that resonate with you or where do you think that that lands <clears throat> so um I think there's the there's an important thing where we don't like I don't like art I respect it and I want to watch it I want to see what cool things it does and how those excite me or confuse me um, the thing that when I say taste making I guess one of the things I'm thinking is like there's we know the whole body of everything that's happened before uh, what is happening that's outside of that right. Is there a, a dialectic approach to the idea of uh, making things that are fundamentally new for which we have no vocabulary or thought, and then those things appear outside of our bubble of language, I experience it um, in various levels, and then I expand my bubble to, to, to get it. Who's, who, who can expand my bubble um, in a way that doesn't pop it, right? It's not just totally something else. Um, and that's it, right? It's like a very kind of decadent, like, I have been temporarily amused and or impressed or challenged by this. My brain had a little skid and uh, now it's back on track and I'm comfortable. And uh, that's, that's like a lot of what the art stuff does for me. Right. Um, and that's terrible. It's decadent. It's awful. Uh, it's a form of uh, quasi intellectual entertainment. Um, but also it's a, sort of discussion that can only happen through objects, through the context of art, uh, through the idea of putting objects together or bodies together in different ways that um, uh, continue or quote or reference or in some way build on a dialogue that already existed. Yeah. Yeah. Fascinating. I, well, uh... I don't know if it's fascinating. Um, no, well, I, I, again, yeah, you, you've, you've, you know, you've kind of mentioned it with some pejorative tones there, but I, I actually, I, this, this ceiling, I, another thing I talk about is in, in game design is that this idea that you're, you know, you're, you're actually trying to create tension 
for your players, right? You're trying to create hard choices and these moments where it's like, oh, wow, I really don't know what to do. And it feels a little bit unpleasant. And that, that then when you resolve that tension and say, okay, I've now I've got a decision, whether it works out or not, you've, you've, you've resolved it. That's a, one of the feel good moments and one of the core aspects of what I try to do with my designs. So I'm not sure it's a negative thing that I'm looking for art to challenge me and push me in a direction where I'm like, oh, wow, that's interesting. I, I like it. I don't know how I feel about it. Maybe I, I don't like it, but it's doing this thing, you know, like, I think that's, that's good. Or even when, you know, I had Morgan Page on as a guest recently is, you know, a, a, a Grammy nominated music producer. And we talked a lot about this, all about music's all about this creation of tension and expectation and resolution of it. And the little unexpected next step of, you know, how the electronic music genre, which is his thing, like there's, you know, sounds and music that if you tried to do this 30 years ago, people would just like lose their minds and couldn't handle it. But now because it's that, that pushing the edge of the bubble thing. So anyway, I, I, I'm, I'm mostly just trying to push back now on this, uh, this, this sort of self pejorative version of this reflection. Cause I think it's a part of what, what art and culture is at its core across all industries. Yeah. Um, and I, but, but is that a good thing? <laughs> do we, is art doing good work? Um, I, I, again, of course it's super important that, uh, one, one of my, one of my fights with myself, um, is, uh, ideas around egalitarianism and making things that are, uh, more accessible or, you know, I don't know. I don't know how to explain that. That's not a fight. I don't fight anything. I'm lazy. <laughs> Just kind of lay there and in, in, in a wash in idleness. Yeah. Well, okay. All right. Then you're giving me two different routes to go. I'll make, I'll make one more comment on that and then I'll, I'll put down, I'll put two paths in front of you. You could choose which one you want to walk down and maybe we'll walk down both eventually. But, um, you know, one is, uh, in the, so the comment before we go down the paths is look, you're making art, any art, any design you do, you've got to know who your target audience is. And it's okay to say, I'm making art for super sophisticated people that know everything about art and they're going to get it because I'm doing this clever thing. Only if you've you know, 16th century Baroque sculptures, do you get, you know, do you, are you going to get it? Or no, hey, I'm making something that's that anybody can get. You don't need to know anything about art. This is like, you know, kind of mom and pop more accessible. And both, there's no less or worse thing. There's some people say, oh, well, unless you're making a, a Euro game, you know, Ameritrash games are, are, are not worth it, or unless you're making blah, you know, whatever, right? I don't, I don't buy into any of that, right? All games are great. All art is great. If you have the right person, right target, and you serve that target. So, Anyway, that's just my little soapbox, but I'll give you the two, <laughs> I'll give you two paths to go down here. Um, as you talked about this transition from game design, from art to game design, you said uh, there are things that you could say that you wanted to say in game design that you couldn't say in art. So one path is let's talk about what you could say and what you're trying to say. And the other path is from art style. What is it that you learned? You talked about being lazy and that's what triggered this second path. What is it that you learned? Um, through your process of creating art to be able to successfully push through the resistance and the challenge of making art and be able to put things out consistently that maybe served you well as a game designer or could serve our audience well. So you can pick either of those paths. And if, if, if we're excited about it, we'll circle back and hit them both. Oh, those are good paths. Um, I like this. I can't wait to see like where the adventure takes me next. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, um, I think that uh, the things I couldn't say, I think that's the trickier one to answer, the less rewarding one. But one of the things that happens is that art, um, the art world 
desperately wants novelty, right? And so you have these sorts of artists who uh, go and they flip over rocks and they say, what new bug is underneath here? I'm going to pick it up and show it to everyone and we're all going to laugh at it. I'm going to make some artwork about it. And that's something that happens with games a lot. Um, You have artists who drag... Uh, a bunch of game-related people into a space and say, ha ha, look at these nerds. Um, I'm doing something sophisticated about the idea that they're doing a performance while they play. I'm having deep art thought. No, it's, and there's so much bad shit that happens. And so one of the things, as I was like sophisticated art guy and uh, game world guys, I kept saying, stay away from artists. Don't let them come to your LARPs. Don't do anything. Most of them are evil. Uh, and, I, and I still stick by those words. Mm. Um, and so one of the things I started doing is I started saying, Hey, how can I, as an artist, make a world that crosses in a productive way? So like one of the things I did is I made in a, uh, I forgot the name of the museum. Uh, I, I took two rooms in a museum and I filled them with a single gigantic sprawling crafted terrain war game table and, uh, one solid surface. And I can't remember. It was like, 50 feet long, 48 feet long in the longest dimension. And this was a handful of things that I was really happy with that mixed because I'm saying, hey, look, gamers, you can come in and play with this. It is a gigantic, wonderful thing. So much space. You'll never get to play in a war game table this big again. Uh, And then on the other hand, I'm saying gamers play with systems that are built for certain types of spaces. A four by eight foot table, four by six foot table is what uh, Warhammer is designed for. And I fundamentally break that system whenever, or I challenge that system if I say, hey, look, you have you know a 40 foot length of table and then there's an elbow, uh, two elbows you, can, you have to deal with. Um, and so that to me as an artist became interesting, an interesting place to play around games. Does that make sense? I'm not being mean. I'm not making fun of anybody, uh, which was important for me. Although I'm still saying things about games that I think gamers get, which other people don't. Uh, And then finally, the thing that, again, I really loved as an artist is that without people using the table, it became this gigantic sprawling landscape uh, became something about, you know, like slab minimalism, right? Uh, it, It was activated and became something different when people were using it. So that was like a successful integration of art and art stuff now i just have i just had a sent one of my game books an art game book to like a museum uh show the dubuque art museum and uh it wasn't interesting because the book is its own thing it's supposed to live out in the world it doesn't need a museum uh and so i'm like oh it's cool that i'm making these art book things that don't actually live in the art world they don't need the art world they're for they're for me and people like me who play games yeah. So that's maybe path number one. Yeah. So 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 one of the things that I heard there, it's interesting, is sort of this: you're still bringing some of this art ethos in that you're breaking the frame of expectations and pushing the boundaries and using that as part of your play space, right? The this 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 you know when you're designing games, you have to play in whatever the box that you're given, right? Like that mm-hmm. it's got to fit on a table. It's got to be played on a phone. It's got to whatever, right? We all, and I, and I'm a big believer that constraints breed creativity. Constraints are a powerful force. Um, but when you sort of can re-examine those, like ve- especially very long-standing tropes and constraints, and then choose to consciously break those, intentionally break those as part of your 
art piece, your design, the emotions you're trying to evoke, that that's a kind of powerful thing that you were able to do um, with your game. Does that, does that sound right? Powerful is a strong word. Hmm. Um, I don't think it was powerful. I think it was clever. I think it was useful. I had trouble saying powerful things with art. And I began to realize that I could say powerful things with games. Uh, and the way that games are, in, are, are used and inhabited and experienced by people um, is different than the way art is, right? And uh, because there's an investment in games when we play them. And there's so many reasons games operate differently. And, I was, and, I, and that's how I kind of arced over into games. Okay, great. Great. And I, um, yeah, there's, I want to dig into the powerful things you can say with games because I think many people restrict themselves to the fundamentals of basic power fantasies and, you know, strategic interactions. And you have broken that boundary on many occasions. So it may be jumping too far ahead, but I want to just put a pin in that. Um, if we want to take this other path about the processes of producing art, and then we can circle into powerful things you started to say in games. So um, the other path, uh, go back to the save game point. Um, is, is what did I learn about art that helps from art that helps me translate into game usefulness? And I think there's um, a set of tools which I, I hate the idea of intuitive things, but there's an intuition which came, comes from art which helps me see spaces around games better. But more importantly, there's just like fundamentally critical tools that art happily borrows from all these different fields. And, the, and and applies to the world it's in uh, that games tend to not. There's a, a art is, is an a, a absorbing amoeba and uh, games really don't do that. You don't have games with a bibliography of, of you know, or a, a list of references and a bibliography, right? Maybe, I mean, some you do, but not, not often enough. Um, I, uh, I, I had as my... <clears throat> As I devolved into the despair of painting, I came to have a real interest in uh, formal aspects of design, formal aspects of sculpture, uh, and I really started to figure out how to analyze a, a an artwork as a system, uh, as a system of possibilities, uh, of choices, and then uh, figure out where I could act within those to create new things. That might be one of the best way to explain this. Um, hey, I am going to make, um, you know, this wooden thing. Uh, what if, uh, this side is, oh, this side could be open. This side could be closed. What does it mean to have that? I figured out a little channel. I can, what are the other channels I can do? So, um, uh, that rolled over into game stuff really nicely because so much of what happens in a game exchange within a standard game is not examined by the game designers or the players. It's, it's something we settle into and we just get it, right? We know how D&D works. So we're going to sit down and do D&D and we're not examining the way that we hand dice or uh, talk to each other who has power. Um, yeah. Figuring out how that I could do that was really useful as a designer. Can you give me some specific example that comes to mind of how you would challenge that kind of core preconceived notion and what that turned into from a mechanic or, or, you know, well, design one choice game I might aim at, uh, is, um, the collection of improving exercises. And I, and this is not, this is not the best example, but I'm going to do it anyways. Cause I'm committed. I said the long title. 
Um, <laughs> a collection of improving exercises is a, it, on the surface, it looks like a perspective drawing book from 1924. You flip through it, it has a whole bunch of drawing exercises. And uh, it's about a person drawing things like still lives on a beach. It's a pretty anodyne seeming text. Um, I wanted to make a game uh, that in that that dealt with the idea of an untrusty untrustworthy narrator, but actually have it be an untrustworthy set of rules. Uh, what if the game designer is lying when they tell you the rules to the game? And this isn't something I'd seen done. And so, uh, and that's kind of what I started exploring with a collection of improving exercises. And so, there's tricks in there. There's secrets in there. There's things you can uncover, maybe. Uh, or different ways to experience the book um, because the narrator isn't trustworthy, the person telling you what to do. Uh, and I think that's that's a really cool spot, place to start. But that's not actually me talking about formalism, right? Um, formalism, like formally breaking something down. And so maybe an, a better example, because um, that's just me using like a literary theory thing, uh, a better example of formalism is saying, hey, um, what is a game? Does a games have endings, right? Well, what if we have a game that doesn't have an ending and that becomes important? Uh, and so I have a terrible game called A Tiny Person. Have you seen this game? Um, no. Horrifying game. Uh, you take a whole bunch of solo cups, as many as you can get, and put them on a table. And uh, it's a two, it was written for the 200-word RPG contest. And the idea is, is the players want to get the tiny person to come out from underneath one of the cups. And so they're saying, hey, tiny person, come out from under a cup. And, they, and the tiny person isn't really there, of course. They're just an imaginary game thing. So the people start lifting up the cups and trying to find the tiny person. And as they can't find the tiny person, the players have to start getting angrier and angrier. So they start swatting <laughs> the cups off the table. Uh, they start, you know, they're angry, they're shouting, and they do this. This happens over like five minutes, if that. Uh, until there's one cup left and they know that there's a tiny person under that cup, that that person is under the cup and they, they, they're furious at this point. They have to be mad at the tiny person. And then for the game to end, and this is disgusting. Someone has to smash the cup uh, and then you just leave it there. The, the rules say never touch the cup. Just leave it there. You can't look and see uh, that the tiny person isn't there. And so this is a game that sort of spun out of the idea of saying, what if we make a game without an end? Mm. Uh, okay, so the Great. remnants of the game have to stay untouched forever, which of course is a useless. Like, no, no one's going to do that, but it helped me kind of set the game up for this horrible, grotesque experience. It's a really yeah. terrible game. Uh, well, I think so. This this uh, um, I think that there's a, uh, a a fascinating thing here. So this ties into a, a principle that I talk about. Um, a lot that it's, you know, which is just sort of assumption challenging, right? Take the core of what you've done, of what's been done, of what you take for granted, make it explicit. And then what happens if you invert it, right? And even the yeah. very ex same one that you just said, what if I make a game that doesn't end, right? Um, Rob Daviau used a similar conceit to make legacy style games, right? These yeah. board games that like one game actually continues to influence the next one. So they don't actually end and that it became a whole new genre, right? Or, yeah. You know, and, and so these are some of the opportunities to make really revolutionary steps forward by just, okay, this is the thing everybody takes for granted. What if it's not the case? And, you know, a lot of times that exploration won't go anywhere, but sometimes it will create those breakthroughs that are just super powerful. So, um, I think it's a great core idea. Um, 
All right, I'm going to go because you've 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 brought us here uh, very directly. Because one of the things I wanted to talk about the most is with you is the ability to create emotions and experiences that are much wider than what people typically assume from games. And I'm going to say, you know, as a as a designer, I've generally speaking fall, generally speaking fallen victim to the to living in the box. Right? I make games that you're you're leveling up your stuff and you're killing monsters and you're fulfilling these different character fantasies that are pretty, you know, pretty straightforward, right? I, I think I, I make, I, I like to think I do good executions of these things, but you know, I'm not making you cry. I'm not making you angrily smash a tiny person. Um, and in, and, and eventually we'll use this to, to tailor into your, to your, your thousand year vampire amongst others, because there's this, this you're able to evoke these feelings of of wistfulness and longing and sorrow and heartache and challenge that just are not common in the space. So talk to me a little bit about how you think about these kinds of emotions, evoking these kinds of emotions, and how do you successfully bring them about when you're um when you're trying to build games that are uh saying more powerful things than most games say. This is this is not what you want to hear. Uh the answer is I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> that's it's all right. science. Um, the uh, what I do is I make my games that slightly break things and slightly re-examine categories and do new formal things, things I haven't seen uh, or, or uh, things I want to experiment with. <clears throat> and I make lots of these games for my friends and for little parties, and we get together, and then the games go away forever. And so everything I make is basically a gift for my friends. Uh, not everything, but many of the things I make are gifts for my friends, and sometimes they turn it into something really much more than 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 what you expect. And so maybe just through uh, a sheer weight of numbers, my dumb little art games occasionally come uh, out as something uh, that's real that 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 people actually find appealing. Right. Um, now that's the easy that's the easy answer. Um, that I just make lots of things and occasionally something lands. <clears throat> it's not a, a great, uh, that's why we have Candy Crush, right? That's not why we have um, uh, uh, games that let us be emotional because clearly I made lots of choices and I'm avoiding talking about it. Um, there's an eye roll that I do whenever someone says uh, that this game is deeply emotional, right? I think, oh, fuck, I'm going to hate this. Uh, they're going to tell me now it's time to cry. Uh, now it's time to have a feel uh, roll versus weeping or something. Right. <laughs> I I loathe the field uh, of that field of games. Um, so much of it is so bad and people are trying. Right. And maybe it lands with other folks, but just generally not with me. Um, with thousand year old vampire, I kept it incredibly loose and i was trying okay this is where i'm saying the truthful thing i was trying to make a two-person game where you're playing it alone but the character you play has other ideas the character you play doesn't want to do what you want to do and that's a potent thing to do if you're alone right uh, if you're playing this game alone, you're like, no, he's got to go do something else, but you're doing this terrible thing. Uh, and now I have to justify it. And for me, that's a really complicated, uh, emotionally loaded um, space is the idea of being invested in someone in this, little, in this character and then them doing something terrible 
and I have to then protect them from it or justify it or take that on to myself in some way. And that kind of is autobiographical in some ways of taking care of other folks uh, who don't have good uh, impulse control, uh, who make terrible decisions and who are awful. Um, so yeah, there's, there's a lot that I just said. I should be quiet now and see which path you're going to give me next. Cause I'm excited. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot to branch on here. I mean, yeah. I think that the, um, uh, first of all, actually, I'm going to ask you to just do a brief explanation of, of thousand year old vampire. I'm familiar with the game, but our audience may not be. So give me a brief synopsis so that people have more context when we dive into the next pieces. Correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, my summary would be, uh, it's a, uh, game in which a solo game, role, tabletop role-playing game, in which you uh, take on the role of a vampire who lives for a thousand years, and over the and you track the course of their existence using prompts. You move through it semi-linear, semi-linearly through a series of prompts and respect and react to them. And every time you react, you add a single little memory, aligned to a memory. And at a certain point, your human brain that is a vampire brain can no longer hold more memories and you begin to forget things. And that's the most impactful part of the game is having to say, oh, uh, I no longer, I have to choose between forgetting my parents or um, uh, 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 all these important things that they're important because you've written them down. I have to strike something through and forget it. Um, yeah. that, that's it. It's a mechanically simple game that has a tremendous punch to it. Yep. And um, beautifully executed. It's the kind of thing like I, I, you know, I know you didn't set out to create a solo role-playing game. I tend to avoid this sort of stuff. Like I make games that have solo modes for people that want them. But like to me, most of my game design is about playing with other people. And so this was, um, but but you ended up there because the design kind of told you to go there. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, just really, rec really recommended to people. Fascinating, beautiful book. Um, so now, uh, okay, so now let's pick some paths to go down. Um, you know, the one... Uh, there's there's you know there's a there's one i'm interested in which you do definitely do not have to go down that road but there's this there's this personal arc to it right you 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 mentioned that you know you've you've had to care for someone who's taking actions that are not uh not necessarily good or they don't necessarily have control over and that that inspires this and i think there's a powerful part of you know coming from the art world i think this is more clear but i think it's true in games too we all have something deep deep things within us that we try to express through our designs and through our work. Um, and so you could, you know, speak more on how that has shown up for you. Um, and how, and I, and I, and I'm saying this not to kind of dwell on painful things, but I'm saying this because everybody listening out there has some personal pain, some personal weakness. I had, uh, Mark Otero on the podcast recently. Um, and he designed the, um, the star Wars, uh, star Wars galaxies and saw a bunch of these like very successful games. And, and we dug into it and it was like his feelings of powerlessness as a child that he escaped into Dungeons and Dragons and into role-playing as the way to give himself a space that he could control. And that those things informed his design work and you could see seeds of it and everything he did since. Right. And I think there, I want to, I want to give people both, normalize that we all have trauma we all have hardship and see how the seeds of that can turn into great and 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 beautiful things um over time so that's one seed i'm going to plant with you it I do not feel like you have to you know <laughs> fertilize that one um the next path that i'll give you is the um what we can say with games that we can't say in other forms i believe has to be um has to generally speaking deal with agency 
the I, the fact that I, as a player, can can and do invest my time and decisions into the space is what makes you know if I'm watch if I'm playing a, a game that's like got a cutscene where what makes you clearly want to cry that's not emotions in games that's a separate movie that's interspersed into my game what makes games emotional and meaningful is that i by investing my choices and my actions into something now i'm able to create this payoff of in the case of hey i wrote down you know in your in your case you described i wrote down these memories and they're gone in you know the uh the ability to um you know write down there's a there's a beautiful game called kind words um that is out there where you you know you write nice letters to people and you can put out questions and pain points of your own and receive letters in return it's just it's you know the 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 fact that i'm 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 creating this space back and forth creates these emotions um so how you think about agency in terms of evoking emotion um as the sort of unique to games art form is the other uh path so two meaty topics i'll i'll pause there well, I think a big thing with agency is how much of it we give up whenever we agree to games, and especially whenever we wander into like the world of freeform LARP, uh, American freeform LARPs. We are giving up so much agency, and then playing in these spaces that become more intense, more um, engaging, more challenging because we've done that. Right? Uh, we're going to make terrible decisions and be cruel to each other because that's what we have to do to make the game operate, uh, and we. Do this knowing that everyone at the table, we all love each other. We're super, we want to make sure everyone has a great thing. We all have agreed to this experience. And that means I'm going to do it harder and meaner. And then, uh, and, and so it's, again, like when your agency, um, there's a, a LARP, can't remember, it's, by a, it's a, a Nordic LARP, um, in which People have to, people are just talking and they cannot express their frustration. They're not allowed to. Uh, whenever they feel frustrated, they pick up a mug and they break it on the ground. Um, and that's the only way they can show they're frustrated. And the other characters don't see them break the mug. It's just simply a thing that you, the player, do to show your character's impact. Um, in uh, the, uh, the game Sign... Uh, by Thorny Games, every time you're 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 trying to communicate using a sign language, you're making up your children who are teaching each other sign languages from your that you've taught yourselves. And whenever you get frustrated and can't make yourself um, uh, make your make your truths understood, you take a marker and you put a mark on your arm, right? And so there's all these ways that we really constrain things. And with that control of our agency, with that can canning of the agency, uh, it makes things so much punchier. Yeah. Uh, does that help? Does that yeah. make sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm going to riff on it. One, I'll clarify, just in case people don't know, LARP, live action role-playing game. It's just the, the basics of role-playing, but you are also kind of acting and moving around, and there's a physicality to it, in addition to just the kind of, we're telling a story together. Um, the... Um, the things that I am very uh, intrigued by when we so games agency as art. Okay, yes, this you know, is you know uh, this you're showing me. Yes, yes. So you're you're t tell tell the audience that's uh, an audio podcast. So go ahead, <laughs> explain, <laughs> yeah, explain, explain what you just showed you. me. <laughs> uh, well, I'm a sh this is the trouble. I almost didn't go get it because I don't know how to say the um, uh, author's last name. Um, games agency as art, and then a C Thai new. Or a new yen. I don't know how to say it. 
Yen's backwards yeah. for you, maybe. Nguyen, Nguyen, I believe, is is the way to pronounce it. But I, I'm, I've actually one of my goals to have him as a guest on the podcast as well because I think this book is really fascinating and, and I, fantastic. I do too. And it, do, it doesn't quite make it, which is so, which is why it, it, I'm so enraged at the book. I'm like, there's something missing, but I don't know what it is, and that's yeah. exciting, right? Because yeah. that's not a problem to solve. That's why we're here, right? I mean, that's why we, we, yeah. we geek out on these kinds of conversations because it's it's. I do think I agree. Like, there's things I would contest with um, with the book. I think, but it's 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 moving us. It's moving the conversation in the right direction, right? Yep. This 100%. idea that um, I don't know. Maybe you want to try to no. summarize your takeaways from the book. No, I don't. <laughs> uh, uh, but I would say that you know, it, it, it's 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 tying into this idea that we're talking about. Just for people that you know, again, I encourage. It's a little bit. Um, yeah, a little bit academic in the way that it's structured, but if it, it, you know, the idea here is it's really exploring this: how playing with agency is the fundamentals of games as an art form. I think that there's a lot of parts of games as art forms, but this idea that this, what the way I put it is like it's there's this interaction between players and rules that is a space that is unique to games. That is a kind of that's where the heart of the of the the artistic form of games is. Um, how that works, how that plays out, you know, very deep discussion. But what I would say is there's another aspect to this, um, which is that when with role-playing games specifically and with the fact that your actions are constrained in this way, it it gives people the freedom to be assholes. It gives people the freedom to be versions of themselves that they would be horrified to be in real life. And in fact, is clearly a part of who we are in real life, right? There's There are these aspects of our psyche that we spend, we're socialized to hide, right? The, again, this power fantasy of dominating others is the is the most common in games, right? It's, and, it, and it shows up in every basic competitive game that's out there. And the idea that I would try to crush you and destroy you so that I could have victory over you, or that I could lie to you as part of that in a game like Diplomacy, where I've actually lost real life friendships playing, <laughs> playing Diplomacy before, um, is, 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 is abhorrent to us, but we all have it. And so the ability to let that show and the ability to force you into these, you know, psychic states or action states of things that wouldn't uh, you would normally hide, I think, is one of the powerful tools of games role playing in particular. But but I think all games have this as an element. Yeah. And uh, just a nice thing. Is when we play games, we take on temporary values that are not our own. Yes. Right? That's just one of the nice fundamental bits out of the book. And uh, that's such a cool way to put it. And when like if we have games where we want to be assholes, then we need to have rules about being assholes, right? Uh, and yes. we need them to laser in on assholeness. And so that's when we have, you know, that's again, Freeform LARP does this kind of thing really well. We're going to have this experience um, where we do one thing and we have a couple of tiny rules about it we have to remember and we're going to all have a really intense experience for about an hour and a half. Yeah. I love that. Love yeah. That. Well, well, and I, I zoom out on this, uh, you know, to, to kind of, to societal level and to a philosophical level, because I think it's like, what is what is society other than the interaction of people and rules, right? Like we have a government, we have systems of rules that are designed to to structure our behavior, either formally with a, you know, these are the laws and if you break them, there's consequences, or culturally, hey, these are the social norms that we are expected to follow. And if you don't follow them, then there's going to be, you know, it's going to push you in different directions. or um, systemically, where we're we're building these interactive systems, so um, that change your human that change human behavior and make us feel differently. Like the difference, you know, simple examples to kind of just make this more concrete, right? The difference between the 
opting into your uh, having to opt into your company's 401k and healthcare plan versus having to opt out of those things. If you change that one systemic UI UX feature, it's a 30% difference or 40% difference, something you know, huge in how many people participate in that plan versus not, right? Or, yeah. you know, donor, you know, having whether you're going to donate your organs or how you're going to structure what makes what makes the thing that's easiest for people changes the way people behave. And when I think about designing economies and designing societies and designing individual little down to the little granular things of how I run my company, I think about this like a game designer. I think these things, I think these same principles apply, not just in the world of play pretend. It's, you know, everything in a sense, we're all playing pretend together, right? That's, that's kind of where how we create our, our constructs. Well, it's it's all systems, right? And some systems we design to have disequilibrium in them, and we want to have a specific outcome. And those are games. Uh, and other systems we design to have disequilibrium in order so we can have more money and we can take advantage of people. And that's, um, you know, capitalism and life. Uh, and, and hopefully at some point, you know, the real life ones reach a, peer, a point of homeostasis where everybody's happy. Right. And then the other one, we have to have a winner. Uh, you, you know, I'm, it's funny. No people at home can't see this, but as soon as you put me in front of a little Zoom screen type thing, I start doing hand gestures where yeah. I occupy the space because uh, I teach and yes. I teach a lot over COVID and all the stuff, the videos, videos. And so I've learned to play in this little box I'm in, uh, like a Vanna White using my hands. Um, <laughs> yeah. And to talk about systems uh, today, and I teach, uh, my university has been going through uh, economic economic flux to put it. Um, uh, budget flux to put it mildly and there is a big student's protest today and i watched them all go and gather in a parking lot and the police had very carefully marked off uh, or blocked all the exits so it was a safe place for them to go and protest right and um i i think about like you know you can protest in the place where the people you're protesting say you're allowed to protest and that's a system and that's a pernicious system and it's easy in real life to buy into that and I was super excited uh, when everyone said, no, no, we're going to go march where we're not allowed. And they did it. And I watched them march away because I had to come to this interview. Um, yes. Well, I <laughs> I appreciate you uh, <laughs> taking time out from, uh, you know, fighting, I, I, fighting the man. I'm happy because <laughs> that's one of the tricky things is I am the man, right? Um, the students, you know, they shouldn't let me sit there. Yeah. Soaking so, so in all their youthful secrets. <laughs> well, yeah. Okay. So, so this is a, this is a, a perfect transition to the kind of next, uh, media topic in general. Um, I love having, um, teachers and professors on the podcast because, you know, there's a lot of people who, when they're in the craft, they kind of intuitively do the thing and they've done it, but they don't really, I haven't spent that level of time articulating it. And I found, I know this is true for me as I've taught now, you know, a couple, several dozen designers directly, probably near, nearly a hundred at this point, maybe more um, directly through my course. And of course, people that work at my company, um, I've had to refine my uh, my own thinking, right? You're, you're, you're how fuzzy you are, right? Right. Uh, in your thinking is it becomes very clear when you try to explain it to somebody else. And so I'd love to dig into, you know, both how you got started, um, in, in teaching and what you've learned about not just design, but the process of helping to inspire others to follow an artistic path, um, or whatever that is, um, through that process. Um, that's, I know you've heard this a million times, so I won't dwell on this part. But when you teach something, you learn it, you have to learn it more deeply yourself, right? And you experience it deeply. Uh, you experience it differently. 
because you have to learn words. You heard me use the word disequilibrium earlier. That's a teacher word. That's not a word I use in casual conversation. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, and so, uh, yeah, I had to figure out like, what is the actual pedagogy on games? What is the vocabulary? What's all this stuff I don't fucking know? And so I, uh, I'm using my boss's book, which Ethan Ham, he has a tabletop game design for video game designers, something like that. And it's a very straightforward list of like chapters that, Hey, this is actions and events and all this stuff. And so I'm just kind of using that as a, I use that as a skeleton to teach on top of, and then I've been flex, you know, building it out since then. Um, the reason I get to teach isn't because I'm a great teacher. It's because I have all sorts of weird real world experience, uh, that the nexus of which is my department, right? Because I used to do fancy animation. You mentioned all this stuff and all of that circles around the idea of digital games, right? There's this halo around digital games, which I fit really well, even though I myself don't make digital games. Although, boy, I have some I have some pitches in me that I wish I could lay on someone. Uh, um, simple games. <laughs> Are you, uh, I, I'll say that again louder for the people in the back. <laughs> um, um, uh, yeah. Well, okay, wait, hold on, hold on. Uh, not only, you know, I have a company, we make physical games and digital games. There's, I know a lot of listeners that are at major game studios across the spectrum. Um, we have, you know, uh, and so do you want to do a pitch right now? Do you want to pitch some game ideas? Um, uh, no, no, I don't. <laughs> okay, I'm, fair I'm enough. Self-conscious because, okay, um, here's one. <laughs> Uh, quick, super quick game design, a, uh, probably VR game, uh, where you are tracked based, your, your motion is tracked based on the controllers and your headset in which there's a person dancing across from you and they're moving. You have to imitate their dances. And once you get the rhythm, uh, a stick appears in your hand and you hit them with it and you break their virtual bones. And then they kind of ragdoll into a new system until you, and you have to imitate that. And this is something I desperately want to see in the world. It's not a great thing to make. It's a pretty terrible idea, but uh, it's, <laughs> it's such an enticing game loop, right? It is. What, that mm. sounds traumatic. What? Yeah. Are, what? What? And <laughs> this is something where it's like, there's a reason I'm a solo game designer. I do everything <laughs> myself because I'm un, I'm insufferable, and I make things that are borderline evil sometimes, right? Yeah. Uh, and people are like, oh, he's an art guy and he's really nice. So it can't actually be as awful as it seems. And I'm like, no, this is terrible. No one should play a tiny person. You know, um, you know, Hitler started as an art guy. I'm just right? saying. Yeah, be a painter. <laughs> um, painters, you should always be suspicious of painters. Um, uh, I have okay. a, oh, I, 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 another one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, uh, and I actually tried to pitch this one to a company once. Um, you have a, a Pieces, players, multiplayer, couch game, little people moving around a uh, colored field. Everyone's a different color. And so when the actual pieces just move across colored certain areas of the board game, they disappear because they're the same color. There's a, another person trying to catch them. And that person, there's very, you know, there could be various things where the board changes color. So then you watch everyone scurry to new hiding places. Uh, it's a really simple, straightforward couch game that I mocked up with a student and it was super fun. And I'm like, why this game? I, I don't want to make this game because, again, I'm an awful person who doesn't work in teams, but I want to play this game. Did, oh, I, did, wait. did this make sense? Why, do, why do you call it? A, what makes it a couch game? Uh, because one person is trying to catch all the other people. OK, um, so maybe it's not a couch game. It could be an online game or a multi-person game. 
or a clever um or, you know, I don't I want to say. And so, and so you're, you're freeform, you're freeform running around and the other people are invisible when they're on a matching color space, color yep. spaces change periodically. So as the chaser, I could come and move towards a color that I think somebody's hiding in, or I'm just watching, I'm trying to pay attention and watch yeah. them as they go. And they could see me when I'm coming closer because we're on a shared screen of something. Yeah. Or it. I go over and I hit a button and everything changes and I get to say, ah, I watch that blue guy run from that formerly blue space to this new one which is a long strip. I know he's somewhere along there and probably there's a, a goal that the, like, you know, everyone, they want to move all the way across the board. The people who are hiding. I would, uh, yeah. So it's really interesting. I could imagine a world where you did this as a, uh, almost, a among us style type thing where you had the different colors that not, it's not just one person versus many. It's at each per each, color team is trying to get certain other people captured and and, oh. and protect themselves and yeah. so now you now you can create some really interesting like okay there's a variety of switches around the board where you can change the colors for somebody else and try to get so you're both hiding and helping the hunter uh in various ways i think would make it uh, a little bit more kind of fun interactive engaging yeah uh, you could and there's anyway. a, there's there was a whole bunch of games that were like this where you had invisible people and then once you once you struck you gave away your position right right um, combat had invisible tanks and that was an outrageously fun version of combat yeah. um, and one of the early unreals had night levels I think so you had flares and your guns flashes right you yeah so away. funny 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 old story of mine I don't think I've I've told so what actually got me into magic in the first place what got me into gaming in the first place was I used to play in a laser tag league i used to play this laser tag with teams and competitive and in between games they'd play magic well, one of my favorite versions of this was or was a version of laser tag where they would turn all of the lights off in the room so you could not see anything at all you would be moving through the space and you could shoot people but obviously once you shoot your laser is super visible and yeah. so it was a like sort of real life version of one of these games where you had to be very conscious like every shot had to count and as soon as you made a shot you had to move because everybody was coming for you um, that's so anyway. good Shoot, super fun shoot scoot now uh, the number of times we would run into each other because it was too dark it made it a little bit harder in real life but it was entertaining uh cool okay cool well so this is this is fun i mean i love i love you know kind of not just you know and thanks for stepping up and uh and and and, and doing some of the pitches because I, I i love working through design stuff live and and yeah. seeing the, the the different ways that that other designers brains work and so this game you know that we're working on kind of now is that you have know, much more traditional style uh which is a, a a fascinating jump from the you know beat your dance instructor <laughs> variation uh, <laughs> uh but uh but I, I again i like it i like the work that you do because it's 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 provocative it gets me to it, it, it I, I really think that to make games more appreciated as an art form they have to be pushing the boundaries not necessarily just for the sake of it as your um you know <laughs> disdained uh, art uh, art colleagues did but but because because it matters because there's emotional experiences that we can have some of them are unpleasant um that you uh that you want to be able to experience and and to be able to explore more parts of the human condition um, there's a game I hadn't actually played it, but I, I downloaded it and I'd, I'd seen it played the, um, like, I think it's called before your eyes. Um, yeah. it's, it's this fascinating thing where it's controlled by your blinking and you're like your timeline, you know, as you, every time you blink, like the, the time evolves and your you know, think your kids grow up and there's these things that move forward and to kind of give you this visceral feeling that, that time is, is slipping by, um, 
fascinating way to use controls and semi-agency to play with your emotions. It's such a great concept. I can't play it very well because I have glasses. Uh, uh, and it's such a good, uh, such a neat game. And it's well done, right? It's yeah. not, there's so many games that are like excellent sketches. Um, yes. But this is, that's just such a good game. Well, it's super hard, and then you know this. This can tie in because your 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 university space is in um, is in digital games specifically, and you know it's one of the things. Whenever I try to teach game design, you know, again, most of my games are tabletop, but I do I do quite a variety of digital games. We even have a hybrid game now, which lives in both zones. Um, but the it's so expensive and hard to do digital games, right? At, at high quality, it just you know requires generally speaking teams of people and huge art budgets and the iteration costs are much higher and so um how do you think about working in that space i don't know have you done you haven't done any digital games yourself have you no i don't do okay that. Uh, and, and so so now you're teaching people that want to work in that yeah sorry go ahead so I, I mean, the thing is like i watch my students one of the things i watch my students do is they spent they they want to make a finished game with a lot of one of the magic things with bradley is that we did the math and i think students are going to make seven finished enough games before they can graduate minimum uh and most of them make i think 14. we make have them make lots and lots and lots of games unlike a lot of places uh but the students are desperate to get the game done and so they don't focus on game design they focus on uh, finishing a game and so the games the students make here suffer from that lack of time to figure out the play. Um, and because the more you develop the game, the harder it is to adjust the play, right? And right. that's such a maddening thing. And so I can't imagine working on a real game, right? On a, on a, on a professionally pr produced game where the stakes are even higher. Yeah, well, and, and I've, I've had plenty of, you know, AAA guests, you know, digital studio guests on the podcast that make some of the, you know, games that make billions, right? And 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 they all say the same thing, which is like, you know, you need to keep your iteration cost as low as possible until you find the fun, right? So you're you're you know, you want to have a team of two or four people at most to get that initial iteration work done, not a hundred or you know whatever that you would have or more on a on a on the final polish parts. And it's not just it's not just that you're wasting time and money on the thing but it actually creates this emotional resistance to iteration the more you the prettier your prototype is and this is true for tabletop designers too the less you want to change it you're like there's a visceral shift oh but it looks so good as opposed to when i have my ugly prototypes and i can just cross something off and change it or make a quick change to a stick figure on a character on their you know how the physics work on a character as opposed to my beautifully articulated you know full-on hero um, it's just it's just better. It's better on every level. And so, yeah, I, I try to beat that into my students uh, as much as possible, as it sounds like. Uh, so do you. Uh, I, I have a weird success story. Um, what, what I teach here is I teach game design one, which is like making board games and stuff and a role playing game, like the obvious things. But also I teach a game history class and a game uh, theory class, game philosophy, critical studies for games. And uh, I had my students say, oh, yeah, we actually took like this idea of diegetic game material, right? Like diegetic information in games, meaning the game world tells you information as opposed to like numbers on the screen or whatever. And they had had a big fight about a health bar or something. And they realized like, well, diegetically, we don't need it because we've put in these other things that show the health bar of the character. Uh, and they and they removed it. And it's so hard to get students to remove things they've implemented, even simple things. Mm. So like yeah. doing that and through a through a theory class was really I felt I felt super accomplished. Like I should have had a little 
pop up um, uh, achievement. Uh, achievement. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, love it. Um, okay, well, let's let's. Um, you know, we we only have so much time left, so we can't get too too meaty. Um, but I I I I love. Uh, I love the esoteric here um, and game theory, not not classic game theory, but, you know, kind of game. Explain, guess, explain a little bit more what you mean by by when you say the word game theory uh, compared to the traditional terms. And then maybe another couple examples like the diegetic information that 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 are, you know, people may not think about as these kinds of core principles of what we what we work with. So game theory, of course, isn't what games game studies is the better thing or uh, we. um uh, we call them theory classes because that's the term we use in the university for classes that support vocational classes. Um, but yeah, so game theory, of course, is the study of odds and best actions within a system. Um, a and uh, uh, game studies, uh, game design. There's this other world which I I don't exactly know what the best word is because game philosophy is, sounds stupid. Uh, yeah. um, concepts that surround and support our understanding of games. So we say, hey, let's do a section on uh, diegetic material in games, and we go in and we look at that. Um, I, I, because, because my bosses kind of said, well, we just like what you do, so you just show them what you tell the students what you care about. And so one of the things we start with uh, is I start them on Michel Foucault, this French philosopher. An anarchist, and I'm like, hey, let's look at this idea of heterotopias, which are these certain certain sorts of architectural spaces. And it seems like it's totally out of left field, but then we start looking and saying, well, like all hospitals and museums and all these things that Foucault writes about in this theory show up in games all the time. How does that relate and why? And now what things does Foucault write about that don't show up in games? And can we make games about those? Um, so it's sort of this ridiculous performance of pseudo-intellectuality in a way that helps them think more about games and more consciously about the fact that you can think about games. Yeah. Do you, do you bring, yeah, that's great. I, so I, again, I was a philosophy major at school. I love, yeah, I, this is my, this is my jam. Like I love this stuff. Um, you know, I'm a, I'm a huge, uh, Wittgenstein fan and he like uses games as the core of like deconstructing everything that we do, right? Like the fact that you can't really define the word game even, and that all yeah. of the things we do are playing language games of building around structures around how we're able to communicate and how we construct meaning in the world and all the things that we think we can make meaningful statements around but we're really deluding ourselves and we're just spouting nonsense all the time like i, I i'm sorry i'm dropping a lot of stuff for the audience that i'm not going to have time to unpack given the time that we have but i i wanted to just kind of balance it in because i do yeah. think that there's you know in in a sense right this is you know navel gazing this is like very highfalutin you know things but i really do believe that the time spent unpacking a lot of these concepts can have very real practical implications in your lives right this wittgenstein who studies the philosophy of language helped me to realize like at you know really at the core of like that you know my identity as a person is a construct that these things are not things that we i used to hold so tightly and now i can let go of more and it makes my day-to-day -day life better and i it applies in you know the work that i do when i think about how i construct the language that we're using within a real game and how players are going to understand that and how i communicate it like these things are very deep topics that are worthy of you yeah. know a lifetime of study i, I fall on the ferdinand de saussure side of things so so well, everything you just said, nah. Yeah. <laughs> just we view games as syntagmatic uh, constructs of signs. 
but yeah, uh, so it's like I pick. But the thing is, is we just do a week on this. We pick out a thing and we just run through it so fast. Uh, we do Mark Auge and say, "Hey, what's the hypermodern space? Let's figure this out." And that's be- and that's sort of like level design stuff. And then right. halfway through, we flip back to um, kind of just like fundamental game concepts that are yeah. useful. Maybe. Well, it's great. I mean, yeah, obviously, yeah, you're, you're, you know, you have new students, you can only go so far, they're interested in making digital games, There's only so far you could spend on Foucault before you're, you're gonna, you're gonna lose them. Uh, but I think that like, well, I just, you know, I'm, I'm glad we kind of ended it here in a sense, because I do think that like, it's just another one of these fields. It's like, it's why I still do this podcast. It's why I still love making games after, you know, 20 some odd years of doing it is because there's always more to unpack. There's always more interesting things to learn. And like, we really are, you know, kind of to tie it back into the very beginning of our conversations, we really are expanding this bubble of knowledge and possibility around what this art form is around what experiences are possible around how we're able to talk about and think about those experiences. And it's clear that you've been doing, you know, a a huge part of, adding that adding to that conversation i think the design seeing your work is what drew drew me to you and wanted me to have this conversation with you learning more now about your background and the way that you teach these principles shows that you're 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 on the ground level of actually you know helping the next generation to do this um and so and now hopefully uh you know you're going to be able to have an impact on a lot more people uh, through through this conversation so i uh for better or for worse but i appreciate you taking the time and uh uh, doing this where where can people go to to learn more about you or play your games or uh maybe potentially argue with you about the contentious things you've said oh a thousand year old vampire.com is where most of my stuff lives um i also have an itch page which i kind of need to tie those two together at least one to the other um but yeah that's it um, do you do you periodically delete things off your thousand year old vampire page? What do you mean? Well, it's part of the theme of the book is the things. Oh, you can't okay. <laughs> um, I, I, oh, I don't. I don't delete things, and I should. And I think you're right. But uh, what I had to draw, and this is a serious thing, right? Is like I'm really interested in metatextual experiments and nonsense, and but I had to. I'm having to draw a really careful line. On a very conscious line, I'm like, yes, you'll have this bizarre metatextual experience, but this is exactly what you're getting, and this is the business, and you're going to give me money, and I'm going to give you this thing, and I really am being careful about that. Yeah, yeah. There's this. Yeah. So as when you, whenever you push outside the the magic circle, right, which is the yeah. kind of the, the 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 industry jargon term for like I'm agreeing to the rules of the game, I'm agreeing to play, um, then it gets dicey, right? Like I've, yeah. we've had uh, you know Jordan Weissman on the podcast, and we had a variety of other people who've built these um, Elon Lee and others who built these alternate augment you know alternate reality games and these things where it's like okay the game now pervades your day-to-day life and you might get a phone call at some point and the joker is calling you and that means you have to go and do this weird thing you know yeah. or whatever or these different things that you can do and i think that stuff is fun but but you really need opt-in Um, you know the 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 um you're by default playing a game if you come to my web store that maybe you won't get the product that we told you uh <laughs> is is a little rough but but again even even you know exploding kittens did this as their um um uh their uh in in store event uh, or sorry at conventions they would do like a you know kind of random yeah. get stuff box you know and you and part of the fun is like maybe i'll get a game of exploding kittens maybe i'll get a cantaloupe and you don't know and like it creates a crowd and creates the whole experience yeah. so playing with store as game is totally on the table but you, you i think there's 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 something really important about the opt-in 
yeah. to 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 give you permission uh, to be weird and do stuff. Or you know, I go to I go to Burning Man every year, or you know, those style of events that are, are intentionally you know disruptive and 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 you know can be even aggressive uh, in some people's art styles at times. But you know, you know what you're getting into when you go there, and so uh, that kind of helps. Again, thanks so much. I love this conversation and I'll look forward to having you uh, as uh, I think our next conversation is part of my next uh, Think Like Game Center class is a great, uh, great way to take it. Cool. Thank you so much. Have a good day. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. If you want to support the podcast, please rate, comment and share on your favorite podcast platforms such as iTunes, Stitcher or whatever device you're listening on. Listener reviews and shares make a huge difference and help us grow this community and will allow me to bring more amazing guests and insights to you. I've taken the insights from these interviews along with my 20 years of experience in the game industry and compressed it all into a book with the same title as this podcast, Think Like a Game Designer. In it, I give step-by-step instructions on how to apply the lessons from these great designers and bring your own games to life. If you think you might be interested, you can check out the book at thinklikeagamedesigner.com or wherever fine books are sold.